the only parameters, the, the questions can be related to ministry, uh, Bible, theology, etc. The one sort of parameter we had to set in place, and as I look out on this group, I don't think I'd have to say this anymore, but uh, you can't try to pit one faculty member against another faculty member. Uh, we used to have that kind of thing going on, that they would, the students would realize, hey, this one professor, he holds to this view, limited atonement, and this guy holds to unlimited atonement, so I'm going to see if I can get them to, to go at each other. So that's not what we want to do. And yeah, we do have some differences on the faculty on some some issues as we're all trying to work through those, but um, we're, we're certainly all friends and we're not pitted against one another. So that's the limitation. You can't do that, but other than that, it's uh, wide open. So that's kind of the framework or the ground rules. So uh, with that in mind, we'll jump in. So who wants to start? Uh, I was just going to say, so uh, raise your hand. And I'll bring the microphone to you, and that way we can kind of have this on record, uh, record so that, uh, uh, like all of our other chapels. Stephen, you going to start us? All right, brother. Here. All right, so I'd, I'd had a conversation with um, somebody back home who uh, argued that the Great Commission was not for us today. He argued that the word disciple is not mentioned after the book of Acts into the epistles, and so there was no need for us to be making disciples, but that it had shifted to some kind of a Pauline model that, that didn't involve disciple making. Um, I had never heard that argument before, so I didn't quite know how to respond. Could sure. you just help me summarize? I, I don't know. It seems to me that it's a self-replicating response, you know, just that, that disciples are called to, to make more disciples, and, and that follows all the way down. But could you right. help me? Just sure. <laughs> yeah, and what, uh, what they're sort of um, playing off of or drawing from is the recognition that the New Testament writers do use different terms for believers. Luke liked to use the term disciple. Uh, in his gospel, Jesus, of course, used that, uh, or that term is used in the gospels, Luke especially, and then that carries over in the book of Acts. Um, but the fact that Paul didn't use that term as much as saints or whatever doesn't change the fact. I mean, just one passage would show the sort of the contradiction there, and that would be the Second Timothy uh, 2 passage, which says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And as I'm sure you've heard, you've got four generations there. You've got Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. So clearly in Paul's mind, uh, even in the book of Acts, you have uh, Paul, use, though he doesn't use the term disciple like Luke does as, as frequently, uh, you have his example where even look at his first missionary journey. So the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 says, separate Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. So they're separated, but what did they decide to do? They decided to take along John Mark. Well, the Holy Spirit didn't say to do that, not implying it was wrong. It was obviously right because Paul was always thinking about disciple-making, reproducing himself. So Paul and, and Barnabas take John Mark along, and then, of course, as you know, the, the story, John Mark bailed out. So when it came time for the second missionary journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to go again. Barnabas says, okay, I'll go get John Mark. Mm, no, he's not the kind of... Disciple, we, we, you know, we're looking for, uh, he bailed out. Uh, so the contention was so strong between them that they split. Paul took Silas as a partner. Barnabas took John Mark. But then what did Paul do? He picks up Timothy. And so he says in, in Philippians, you know, uh, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. 
uh, that I may know of your affairs and how you're doing as soon as I see how it goes with me. And then he says, for I have no one else like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, but you know his proven character as a son with his father. He has served with me in the gospel. So I think it's a really uh, un, you know, a position that's not, you, you can't substantiate that the one that's mentioned that somehow once we get past the book of Acts and into the Pauline epistles, the church epistles, that somehow, somehow we now have a change in, in direction in ministry because Paul modeled discipleship. He taught Timothy to do discipleship. So uh, I think it's trying to, trying to camp and make a division just based on terminology, um, but not in actual substance. Does that answer make sense? Okay. All right, John. Pastor Brian, how would you view the role of uh, non-vocational and bivocational ministry in church leadership, especially when it relates to small towns and rural churches? Sure. Yeah, well, as you know, that in small town and rural churches, that uh, most of the scenarios are bivocational. They're just by necessity because the church maybe isn't large enough to support. I have friends who've, who've done that, gone that route, and um, so it, it, it's a necessity. But one of the things, and you said bivocational or non-vocational, um, did you mean by that that um, like lay elders, in other words, in addition to like a, a pastor who may be bivocational than yeah. other lay leadership? Yeah. So then I would say this, that so if you, let's say you have a scenario where you have a, a man who's a pastor, but the church isn't large enough to support him, so he's going to also have a job in the community uh, to supplement uh, his, his work, then I think... It is always the case, but maybe you could argue that even more so important in that type of scenario to make sure that that man is working, going back to the previous question, to disciple, be disciple-making and raising up other spiritual leaders, raising up uh, elders in the church, um, non-vocational elders, or not, not, you know, not pastors is usually the term that we would use for someone whose support comes from the church. Uh, so to raise up lay elders... Um, it, very essential in that type of scenario for his while he's there and especially if he were to go on because the time, the time in the life of a church when it is most vulnerable, frankly, is when it doesn't have a pastor and yet it's the time when the church is making the most important decision of its existence trying to choose a pastor. So uh, of all things, it is just essential in those rural churches uh, where you have maybe a bivocational pastor that he really try to work and, and see the Lord raise up men who can shepherd with him, especially if he's bivocational, he can't be doing it full-time. So he's going to need that help of other men shepherding with him. And then if the Lord moves him on or he has to step out, you don't want to leave the church shepherdless. And so this is a conversation I have with a lot of men. Some of you know my nephew, who's a graduate of the Bible College here and who's pastoring up in northwest Montana, a very rural setting, and he calls me, Regularly, I, every other week we have conversations, and a lot of them revolve around how to, how to encourage men, how much to expect of them, because that's always a t you know how, what's realistic if they're you know if they're they're a man in the church who's a rancher or a dentist or whatever he is, how much is realistic to expect of him as an elder? So I have these conversations all the time, but you know how however it looks, and, and in each setting it may look differently depending on the the men you have to work with, uh, very essential for a bivocational pastor, for any pastor, but especially a bivocational one to have other shepherds 
that he, so since he's not able to shepherd full time to, to assist and then in his absence. So I don't know if that answers your question or. Yeah, thank you. So what if there's a, like, this happens in Mongolia a lot, there's a woman who knows the Bible, mm -hmm. but the guys don't. Yes. But, and so she's basically the pastor of mm -hmm. that church. How would you deal with that? Because they won't step up. Yes. Yeah, that is not an uncommon scenario, not merely in Mongolia, but we see that in a lot of settings, in a lot of uh, mission settings. And it's... Um, it is complicated. It's, it's uh, difficult to know how to navigate that, and I, I would say that probably my uh, input would be that if, if this woman really knows Scripture, and if she's married, then the best case scenario would be for her and her husband, even if he doesn't know Scripture but could be a part of the process, to, to try to identify a man in the body or in the congregation who has the potential to be in leadership and then sort of do like what Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos in the book of Acts, sort of pull him off to the side and give him instruction, training, etc., to with the hopes to sort of see him raised up. So it's not something that you would do so much publicly because it does get very complicated with, with the passages in Scripture on male leadership and the importance of male leadership. And here yet you have, a, this is the only member of the church that even knows the Bible. It's a, it's a lady. So then, again, like I said, probably the dynamic that I would encourage is if she and her husband could pull, you know, prayerfully consider someone that, that the church would look to and respect as a leader, but is not ready to be a leader because he doesn't know the word, he doesn't know how to impart the word or explain it, etc., then to, to on the side, pull him off to the side and have some training with him and try to be in that role and maybe even be in that role ongoing, even once he's sort of installed into the position of leadership that maybe behind the scenes they still have that role in his life, uh, just like Priscilla and Aquila did with, with Apollos. But okay. not simple. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, good question. Let's go to Corbin. <laughs> On the topic of inerrancy of Scripture, uh, me and a friend were having a discussion, and he is um, basically going on the account of on Mark chapter 1, um, 2 through 3, uh, basically he's arguing that there's a misquote in the Bible as it's referring to, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, the first part of that quote is actually in Malachi 3, 1. Um, I guess how do you go about deciding if that's an error or not? Uh, so just to follow up to make sure I understand the question, if it's in Malachi, why would he have a problem with, with Mark saying is written in the prophets? What, what is yours? What? Um, it's, it's the ESV. Oh, oh, ESV says Isaiah. Yeah, okay. so okay. it's written in Isaiah. Okay, so, okay, yeah, and mine, um, the majority of manuscripts have in the prophets. Uh, so you've got several things going on there, obviously. Uh, um, You'd have to go back and do some textual criticism on what is the best reading. Is it Isaiah? Uh, in other words, did the majority manuscripts change to in the prophets because it was a problem? It, we know that kind of thing happens. Sometimes, again, just to try to, for lack of a better term, smooth over 
Sometimes something will get in a manuscript, then it's copied a bunch of times, so it's in the majority manuscripts, but it doesn't mean it was in the earliest manuscripts, uh, etc. So, but the other thing is, uh, there are several quotes, and this would be my best guess. I, I'd have to go back and study this specifically, so don't necessarily quote me on it, but I'll give you some food for thought to maybe chase down. Um, we, I do know that in Matthew's account, he attributes, I don't remember exactly how it is, a quote to, I think it's to Isaiah that's actually in Jeremiah, something similar to that. But one of the things that we know was because Isaiah was, even in our order, you know, we've got the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. The, the Jews, they didn't, they didn't, their Bible is not divided up the way we have it divided up. If you've ever looked on the spine of, of a Hebrew Bible, it's, there are three Hebrew words there, uh, and it's the writings, the law, and the prophets. And so that's the way they divide theirs up. Torah, Kituvim, which is a passive for katav, to write, so that which has been written, the writings, and then prophets. And sometimes all the prophets are under the, the rubric or the title of Isaiah. In other words, so any prophet can be, it can be attributed to Isaiah simply because it's under that category of prophets. So my guess is that's what's going on here. I'd have to go back and look exactly again to make sure uh, which reading. But, but that is, so that, that's not the only place in the New Testament where you have that type of thing where it's attributed to someone, but it's not in his book. But if it's especially attributed to Isaiah, that's not surprising. Because he's the head of the prophets, if you will, the leader of the prophets. So if you're going to quote from the prophets, which my manuscript has, prophets, uh, the New King James, uh, you can just attribute it to Isaiah. So I'm almost sure that's what's going on there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm looking in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, um, verse 11 and 12 talks about God sending a strong delusion. Uh, what exactly would that look like? Especially how it seems like he's just like placing on men's hearts so that they don't believe and they're condemned. What exactly is that looking like? Sure, yeah. Okay, Second Thessalonians 2, and you're right. It is a very strong passage of God's active agency in the, the, uh, in the hardness of man's heart. But you just need to back up a little bit. Let's just back up and kind of walk through this a little bit here. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, in my opinion, is a, is a futuristic passage. Not all would agree with me on that, but I think that this passage lines up with what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where he says in verse 15, when you, referring to the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So that's why we know he's referring to Jews, because who lives in Judea? not people who live in Missouri, obviously. So if you live in Judea, get out of there. And this is, as Jesus said, this is what Daniel said. Daniel, at least in three chapters of his, of his prophecy, refers to this future, use what title you want to use now, man of sin, little horn, antichrist, etc. So all that to say, I think this passage ties in with Revelation 13, Matthew 24, Daniel's prophecy, uh, about a future man who is going to be so significant that John could say in 1 John, you have heard, he says this to his readers, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. 1 John 2, you've heard that. So basically what John is saying is, listen, all of us here 
believers in the first century, we've all heard about this man who's coming uh, because he's such a predominant figure in Scripture. He, he occurs in so many passages. So John says, you've heard that, and he doesn't deny it's the case. And he says, but even now, many antichrists are already here. So yeah, there is a future antichrist coming, but there are a lot of antichrists. So again, um, Daniel, Matthew 24, it's also a shortened version of, of the Olivet Discourse in Mark. 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, that he's called the beast in that chapter. So there is going to be a very key man in the future. Paul refers to him here, and uh, we usually, in popular terminology, know him as the Antichrist. That comes from John's uh, designation, but Paul called him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. So if you go back, what's going on here in chapter 2 is this. Paul, it seems pretty clear from 1 Thessalonians, his first letter, that when he was in Thessalonica, he had taught the believers there that there are a series of events going to take place in the end times. One of those events, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, is this. Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So Paul taught them about this great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. He follows that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Of course, there were no chapter divisions when he wrote it. But he follows that by talking about the day of the Lord's judgment. Now, any Jewish person, uh, or I should say this way, no Jewish person would need any explanation because they've read all through the prophets about the day of the Lord, this future time of God's cataclysmic judgment. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, followed by the day of the Lord's judgment. And so he seems to be teaching them not only what's going to happen, but the order. So he comes to 2 Thessalonians 2, and between his writing in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, some people got in the ears of the Thessalonians and basically said this. Oh, by the way, Paul has changed his view. He's changed his mind. He's, not, he's no longer teaching the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, followed by the day of the Lord's wrath. So we know that because he opens this chapter by saying, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, so here's this, you know, some letter coming in. Well, here's Paul's new view. Here's Paul changed his view. As though the day of, now here we've got another textual issue going on here. The day of Christ had come. The day of God had come. We, we can come back to that. But he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless two things happen. The falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. So the Thessalonians were... They were what verse 2 tells them not to be. They were, they were shaken in mind. This is a very strong Greek term, by the way. It means just to be mortified. I mean, just uncontrollable. They just were, you know, the, the thought of going into the, what we would call the tribulation, but the day of the Lord's wrath. So he says, don't be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word, uh, because you're not in the day of the Lord. Now, why did they think maybe they were in the day of the Lord and they had missed the great gathering together into Jesus in the air? Well, we know why. Because one of the things that Paul had taught them, and this is confirmed by Jesus in Matthew 24, it's con confirmed by John in Revelation 13, 
is that a major aspect of the, the time period known as the day of the Lord will be persecution of believers. And so they were being persecuted. So it's like, okay, this combination of we are being persecuted and we're being told that Paul has changed his view. We missed the great gathering together into Jesus in the air. We're in the day of the Lord's wrath. And that was, it was terrifying then. So he says, don't, because you're not in the day of the Lord's wrath, because two things have to happen before you would, could possibly be in the day of the Lord's wrath. And that is, there must be this great falling away, apostasia in Greek, and the man of sin is revealed. So two things have to happen before the day of the Lord's wrath, or let's just use the popular term, the tribulation. Two things, a great falling away, and the man of sin is revealed. Well, the second one is easier. The man of sin is revealed because anyone who knows Daniel 9 knows that the man of sin is going to sign a seven-year treaty that kicks off the final seven years of God's program for Israel. So whenever somebody signs a seven-year treaty with Israel, uh, a world leader, that's a pretty good idea that now that's the guy. Okay, he, he's the guy. The first one, the apostasia, is debated. That's a little more difficult. Most of the time, this Greek word is used to refer to a, a religious defection. You know, even we use the term today, we say to apostatize or don't be an apostate or whatever. Uh, but the Greek word actually comes just from the Greek uh, verb, aphiemi, which is, uh, doesn't really have those religious connotations. So all that to say this. In all likelihood, at least my interpretation is, this great falling away, and the man of sin is revealed, the great falling away is somehow connected to the great gathering together into Jesus in the air. Because if all believers are gathered to Jesus in the air, as 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about, all that is left on planet earth now are apostate believers. All you have left are people that don't believe the truth. They may be religious, and they may be in churches, but they're apostate. So what's going to hold anybody to the truth? Nothing. There's going to be, be easy for there to be a great falling away. So again, that's just my interpretation of it, but I just tried to wrestle through what is Paul talking about here. So just for the sake of, I'm getting to your question, I promise. Uh, just for the sake of, of sort of setting it up, um, so Paul seems to be saying, you're not in the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord can't come until there's this great falling away and the man of sin is revealed. So then he got, starts talking about this man. He says, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now that's Matthew 24, 15, what Jesus said. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So Daniel told about this. Jesus told about this. Revelation 13 tells, tells about this. 2 Thessalonians 2. There's coming a man of sin who is going to be so arrogant, so blasphemous, he's going to sit in the temple and declare himself that he's God and demand worship. All right? So that's going to happen. And then Paul says, listen, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In other words, listen, I haven't changed my view. This is what I told you when I was with you. I'm just going to reiterate it. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his time. So again, to, the, to get to your question, this is futuristic. This is during that time period when the world will be going mad for, for in favor of the Antichrist. And remember in Greek, anti means against, but anti means also in place of or instead of. So there's going to be a man who is instead, of, he's going to oppose the true Christ, 
but he's going to be the world's savior instead of the true Christ. They're going to go crazy for him. They're going to take his mark so they can buy and sell, etc. So he says, this guy is coming and the world is going to run mad after him and he's the savior, he's the, he's the answer. And verse 8, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Here's the interesting thing. Power, signs, wonders. Those three terms are the exact same three terms used to refer to the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. Exact terms, except one exception, the word lying. So they will be wonders, signs, powers, but they will be deceptive. And the world will great, greatly and gladly embrace this man with all of these miracles. And so for that reason, now if you understand that, then the, your verses begin to make sense. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, now here's the key phrase in all of this, because they did not receive not just the truth, they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. So what Paul is saying is that this, and this is the way the book of Revelation describes people in the end times. It says they will know that the events that are happening are the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, they say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They know where this is coming from, and yet they blaspheme Him and shake their fist at Him. The hatred of the, this world for Christ will reach its peak during that time, and their love of error will reach its peak simultaneously. And so that explains then these verses which seem so problematic if you take them out of that context. Well, is God just mean? Is he trying to deceive people and then send them to hell? No. You put it in that context because they don't receive the love of the truth. They don't want the truth. They don't love the truth that they can be saved. And for this reason, because they will know the truth and hate the truth, reject the truth, want the, the deception, want the lies, because of that, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So it's as if God says, well, sort of like Pharaoh, all the way back when it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and if you read the text closely, um, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's like God says, okay, after a while, that's the way you want to go? Go. And when you go that way, by the way, you'll be damned. And that's exactly what these verses are saying. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So their love of unrighteousness, their love of error, their hatred of truth will result in God saying, okay, that's what you want? There you go. And then you'll be damned. So in that context, it makes more sense. But if you just pull it out, it sounds a little bit arbitrary. Yeah, so, good. All right, so uh, my question is about the condition of the heart. Um, in Ezekiel 36, where it talks about, um, and I will give you a new heart and new spirit, and I will put within you. Yes. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then just talking about that with, with uh, comparison to Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, where it talks about the heart is deceitful above all else. Yes. So what, so my question is, what is the condition for a believer um, who is a new creation yeah. with the condition of their heart? 
Yeah. Great, very, very good question. And I know a lot of Christians who wrestle with this and actually argue with one another because Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, who can know it? And then, but we have new hearts. And then so sometimes they hear Christians quote that about us, all of us, you know, like, hey, we shouldn't be surprised that we do this as Christians because the heart is deceitful. And then some Christians panic. No, no, no. You can't quote that verse and apply it to all of us because we have a new heart, etc. So that's, that's the debate. Well, um, without, and I'm not trying to sort of, you know, play Solomon, cut the baby in half and be politically correct, but both sides are right on this. And what I mean is, it is true that we have a new heart with the new birth. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, unless you're born from above, you're not going to see the kingdom. And, and he went on to actually allude to Ezekiel, the new heart, and he says to, to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So it is true we have a new heart. So technically, do you want to quote Jeremiah 17, 9 for us as Christians? Well, I understand that, that maybe you don't want to say, well, but Jeremiah was talking about the heart in the natural condition, not once it's been regenerated with a new heart. Okay, I understand that. So maybe that's maybe not the best way to use Jeremiah 17, 9, but the reason I don't panic about it or, or, or react is because however you want to describe it, whatever you want to say about it, I don't think any of us would deny that there's still, now again, call it what you want, call it sin nature, sinful disposition. I mean, there's something in us that still goes the wrong direction, even with a new heart. And I think any Christian who would deny that is deceiving himself or lying. I mean, Paul even said, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He didn't say of whom I was chief. I am still chief of sinners. That was no false humility on Paul's part. That's the way he saw himself. Because Paul was so close to the light, the closer you are to the light, the more flaws you see. Paul saw all his flaws. He saw all his shortcomings. And so when he writes to Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am. I am the chief of sinners. I know my own heart. I know how, you know, now would he have said, I know that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? <laughs> would he have used Jeremiah 17.9? I don't know. But basically what's being debated in that is a technicality. You know, is the heart the same? It's not the same. It's a regenerated heart. Is there still the vestiges of sin within? Absolutely. I, again, I don't know of any Christian who would deny that and say, hey, I don't, I don't have a, call it what you want, heart, nature, disposition. I don't even have anything anymore that inclines me towards sin. If that's your claim, I, let me know how you got there. I'd like to get there because I'm not there. So, uh, that, so that's what's going on. So if you quote Jeremiah 17.9 in, in reference to all of us as believers, I don't panic, but I understand why others are uncomfortable. They they feel like it somehow strikes a blow at regeneration in the new heart. So, yeah. I just want to see if there are any girls that have questions. Any ladies? No. No, the ladies have all the answers. So. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Going back to um, inerrancy, how would you respond to someone? doubting scripture um, based on the belief that there is um, inaccuracy in um, the genealogies in the Gospels? Yeah. Um, Well, what I would say is this. The first thing, and I I would say it graciously, but I would just say 
because a lot of people use that as a front, and I don't mean they're being hypocritical. Some could be being hypocritical. Others just have sort of heard it, and so they've latched onto it. So the first place I always go when someone says that to me, and I, and I don't, again, say it in a harsh or sarcastic way, but um, show it to me. Because so many times people say, well, there's these contradictions in the Bible, these errors. Please show it to me. And they can't because they just have heard that or they've heard, oh, there, there are some in the you know, genealogy or like the question that was asked earlier. It's attributed to Isaiah. We know it was in Jeremiah, not understanding that all the prophets are under the uh, heading of Isaiah, etc. So that would be the place I'd start. So, okay, if, if, if you are a, an honest doubter, not a dishonest doubter, where you're just looking for something, but you, you, then show me and let's work through it. And so if they would show that, then I would say at that point, uh, God has given you a responsibility with your friend or acquaintance or whatever to say, I need to dig into this and see, you know, because it is a fact, like in Matthew's genealogy, that uh, he, he, he lines it up under, I think, three groups of, what is it, 14, is it? Yeah, three groups of 14. So it's like, well, did he skip some to make it work that way, et cetera? And, and so uh, then you've got some homework to do. Say, okay, I, I, I see what you're saying now. Let's, and then, then there, are, there are always answers. So I would just say there really aren't valid reasons to distrust the Bible. If you're looking for them, you, you know, you, you can try to find them. But, but I would just say, show me what you're struggling with, and let's do a little homework and then get into it. Thanks, Tim. Let's go over to Esther here. Somebody once told me that they think that the canon isn't closed, but not that we can write new scripture today, but that there was scripture written in the during Paul's time that Paul wrote more letters that we just haven't found. Um, that and that basically you can't know that the canon is closed because there's no way we could have gathered all of those letters. Mm, sure. Well, um, and I would say it is true that Paul wrote other letters. Um, for example, we know from what he says he wrote at least four to the Corinthians, and we only have two. Um, they are called First and Second Corinthians in our Bibles. They were actually Second and Fourth Corinthians because he wrote a previous letter, and then he wrote what we call First Corinthians. Then he wrote a letter in between. Then he wrote what we call Second Corinthians, his fourth letter. Uh, he references in Colossians, I believe it is at the end of Colossians, a letter to the Laodiceans. We don't have that. Um, Jesus sent a letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, but we don't have Paul's letter. I think it's the Laodiceans he mentions. So, yeah, it is true. Uh, it is true that there are other letters. Um, but the, the argument would have to go like this. Then, if those were inspired which we, we don't deny they were probably helpful. We just wouldn't agree that they're inspired. Um, if those were inspired, then you have a, an issue more with the, um, what, what term would I use here, the providence of the Holy Spirit. If he inspired those, let's just say it this way, if he wrote those letters through Paul, and I'm not denying human authorship, human vocabulary, style, all that, but... But ultimately, if you look at the work of the triune God, they each have some major roles, like the Son redeemed us, He died for us. Well, one of the Spirit's major contributions to us is Scripture. It's called the sword of the Spirit. So this is His deal, if you will, the Holy Spirit's. So if He inspired those letters 
And he wanted them a part of Holy Scripture or the canon of Scripture to be part of what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit, then in his providence, why allow those books to be lost for 2,000 years? So it's, you know, it's, it's all a hypothetical discussion because they can say, well, there are these other letters. Well, yeah, we know they were, were written. There's no evidence that they're still in existence uh, because uh, just because of the writing material on which they were written. They, they're going to disintegrate unless you have a very rare scenario like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. Uh, the only ones that survived were, well, as you know, we don't have any original manuscripts. They just didn't survive. All we have now are, are copies of those. So, you know, really, you're, you're, you're getting the hypothetical, well, then why, if the Holy Spirit did inspire those and wanted, why didn't he just preserve them? He did preserve First and Second Corinthians, or Second and Fourth, not First and Third. So it's, you know, it just becomes a hypothetical discussion. In addition to the historical facts of, uh, the early church, you know, putting together first in 180 the Mur Muratorian canon and then the uh, uh, final eventual statement by the church that it's obvious that these 27 books are the canon. Uh, the reason why they waited so long actually was this issue. They didn't want to make a statement too early if there were other letters or books that would be discovered. So they, it sounds really odd to think that the canon was open for 400 years. But it, there's a sense in which it really wasn't open. Uh, it's just there wasn't an official final statement because the church wanted to, to not make, you know, be too hasty. So, yeah, it, again, I would just say that's, you know, that's, it's just sort of hypothetical and you, you're sort of, um, yeah, you're, you're kind of uh, making an argument that really has no point. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but. I think we've got time for one more. Rick. Kind of a personal question to start, but it'll lead to the broader application. Sure. Uh, how is God real to you, and how does God make himself real to believers today? I can read about George Washington through the history books, uh, embrace him. My emotions can be affected by my knowledge of who George Washington was to the mm -hmm. point that I recognize and accept the reality of him and can actually be in love with mm -hmm. who George Washington was. Mm -hmm. How does God make himself real to us apart from our emotions? Sure. Uh, well, yeah, I, and what you've kind of hit on there, Rick, is there is both an objective and subjective element to that. In other words, the objective, we don't just you know, hope there's a God, there's, th th there are facts, there's, there's information, data uh, from Scripture, but even in creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork, day unto day at her speech, night unto night reveals knowledge, there's no language where their voice is not heard, I mean, nobody times nothing can't equal everything, and you just look around, there has to be, you know, a design, uh, there's design, there has to be a designer, so there's that objective side, but subjectively, I don't back away from the subjective part of it. Um, I would say like the, the, the man in John 9 who was blind and, and could see and was pinned into the corner, he says, you know, is he a prophet? And they're just grilling him. And he finally says, listen, whether he's a prophet or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I used to be blind, but now I see. So for me on the subjective side is, I mean, I was a 15-year-old teenager not looking for God at all, and he totally transformed my life. 
I mean, he intercepted me. I, I wasn't looking for him. I, I was trying to get, stay away. My brother actually was talking to me about the Lord, and I had all kinds of excuses for not going to church and all this. I said, I'm too busy. I work. I, go, I play football, uh, and, and I go to school. I just can't. And so God fixed that one Saturday morning at football practice. I broke my left wrist. I'm out of football for a while. So my brother comes back to me and says, you don't have an excuse. You, you can't play football for six weeks. You need to come to church with me. So, okay, I'll go to pacify him. So I went. One, one Sunday night, I just went with him, and God intercepted my life. So how, how is he real uh, to me? He's real to me in that subjective experience I had of, I used to be blind, but now I see. But he's real to me on the objective side because... A lot of things we've talked about in here, the, the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture, the witness in creation, all of that on the objective side says, you know, the combination of, of those is what convinces me of the realness of God. Is that, I don't know if that's at all what you're asking about or looking for, if that even makes sense. So, yeah, not either or subjective or objective, but both and. I'll do it. Let's close and go to lunch. Father, thank you so much for our time together this uh, morning. I thank you so much for these students. I'm excited about this new year, uh, the, all the new incoming freshmen, the returning students. Uh, what, a, what a neat student body. And I pray, Father, that, um, that each and every student here would, in the midst of the grind, which, which it is at sometimes, just with all the assignments due and papers and reading, in the middle of all of that, that they would not lose sight of what an immense privilege it is to be able to spend so many hours studying your word and studying truth and studying theology and, and that, that that's not something that would uh, just, they would take for granted, but rather, again, as I said, just be in awe that you've allowed them to do this at this season of their lives. So I pray for a great semester here for each of these students, one in which they grow, one in which they learn, uh, not just learn and grow in the sense of intellectual, though certainly that's part of it, but grow in closeness to Christ, grow in Christ-likeness, which is your goal uh, for us when you save us, to make us like your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.